Ramble. If I offered you two different pairs of jeans and I told you that you can only wear one of them, you could probably decide in two seconds. But what if I offered you a thousand pairs of jeans and they're all slightly different and I said you can only wear one of these for the next 12 months straight. This will be your go-to pant of choice. What are you going to do? How do you even start to choose? That's exactly what I felt like when I was combing through thousands of listings whenever we were moving to a new apartment. I would spend hours a day stressing about, is this apartment in a good neighborhood? Is it going to accommodate my dogs? Does it fit my budget? I didn't know any of these. And the worst part is most of the listings didn't even tick all of my boxes. That is why Apartments.com is your best place to look for your new home. Apartments.com lets you filter your search based on whether you have pets, if you want a balcony, built-in AC, whatever it is that you're looking for. The website remembers your search so that you don't have to keep filtering every time you come back. And Apartments.com has more rental listings than anywhere else, meaning no matter how specific your needs are, they got you. And your instant alerts mean that you can spend less time online looking for the perfect place and more time doing you. So if you're looking for a new place to call home, head over to Apartments.com, apartments.com, the place to find a place. Bada bing, bada boom. Today's case is going to be a rabbit hole. I'm going to take you down this journey in Japan. It's a Japanese case, but there are so many moving elements. There's so many different parts. It's all about a woman, and actually a British woman who is a flight attendant. That's what everyone said. British Airways flight attendant dismembered in Japan, buried in a cave by the beach. And that's not even just the gist of it. I mean, there are so many parts. There's a porn producer who gets involved. The underground world of the Japanese mafia, known as the Yakuza that gets involved. There is a serial rapist just operating in the shadows of Japan for the past 30 years. I am talking his victim count is anywhere between 150 to 400 women. And it all starts with something called hostessing. Do you guys know what hostessing is? Are you talking about the... I think you know, right? I watched some documentary before. Okay, so hostessing in Japan. This is this is not chit-chat. This is all really, really pertinent information to understand the full depth of this case. It's very fascinating. I want to put a quick disclaimer, though. I feel like when it comes to different countries and different cultures, you don't really understand the gist of it unless you've experienced it. Now, I've never been to Japan, but I read a book on it that I'm going to mention later. I watched a bunch of videos of people being interviewed on the streets of Japan, like people going up to Japanese people being like, hey, what do you guys think of hostesses clubs? Mm -hmm. So I try to get the gist of it. And essentially, it's like this. You know how in America, we've got a strip club. We've got clubs where you go with your friends, right? And then they they have like the hostesses that bring you bottle service and stuff. But they don't necessarily hang out with you. Like they're not your friend. They're not going to sit and like chit chat. Mm -hmm. And then strip clubs, you know, they're, they're dancing. You pay for dances. But a hostessing in Japan is an establishment that you go to. Sometimes it's a bar. Sometimes it's a club. Sometimes it's a cafe where they serve coffee sometimes it's a hot pot shot where they just Mm. serve hot pot and these hostesses there's women there right and they will sit at the table with you and you pay by the hour they pour your drinks they flatter you they essentially stroke your ego and they're just your company for a little while but that's it Mm-hmm. essentially that is it there is no touching there is no groping there is no you know there, there's none of that involved there's no nudity there's no um dancing involved that's it you literally just flatter their egos and essentially it just seems like these hostesses they are just filled with um they just have to sit through dull conversation that's what a lot of these interviews are exposing nobody is there being like hey show me your tits you know like come back to my hotel that's what they said it's not like that at all it's completely different so there are different levels of clubs in japan 
understand. So you've got the hostess, you know, cafes or bars where you sit at the table, you talk to them. It's kind of like you're you're mingling. It's kind of like you're flirting almost. There mm-hmm. is this undertone of like flirtatiousness, but everyone walks away at the end of the night knowing we're not doing it. You know, she's not going to show me her boobs. She's not going to show me her butt. That's not what's happening. And then you have, you know, gentlemen's clubs, which I think are more equivalent to like the strip clubs that we might be familiar with in America, right? And then they also have like no pants shops. So these are shops that you walk into where you are not allowed to touch anyone and essentially like no one's dancing, but they're just serving you without pants on, which I find to be fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, so there's literally a no pants shabu shabu, which means hot pot, which I find to be dangerous. That's really, (laughs) really (laughs) hot pot, you know? And so the only job of these hostesses at the club is to light the client's cigarettes, pour their drinks, and a lot of the times sing karaoke with them, okay? So they've Mm. got this massive karaoke machine in the middle of the room. You go up there and you're like singing with them and you get paid money to do this. It sounds nice, right? Sounds nice. Yeah. Your whole thing is to just keep them spending money. So think of it like this, waitressing, but you stay with them after the food is served. And, you know, you're just talking to them. Now, the talk is super mundane. That's what everyone says. All these former hostesses that are interviewed is like, it is the most boring <laughs> shirts you will ever talk about. You just talk rubbish. How was your day? Oh, my God, you're a banker. That's amazing. Like, what do you do at a bank? You just have to be so fascinated. Sometimes they talk about traveling. They say that the experience is bizarre at first and then it just gets really boring but overall most hostesses say that you know i feel really safe like i don't feel like my life is in danger my managers are looking out for me and none of these guys really feel like oh yeah you gotta come home with me so japanese men love spending money at these places and they mainly spend company money here it's considered a respectable business gathering place and i'm gonna give you the psychological breakdown of it which just blows my mind it makes so much sense okay so these japanese salary men is what they call them aka businessmen right they've got all these clients they're trying to close a deal you're like a real estate agent you're trying to close that deal you bring them after hours to these um hostess bars and it rewards the employees for their good work but also now the client is here and they're talking with these girls these girls are essentially doing the work for the businessman (laughs) they are essentially entertaining this client meanwhile the girls are also flattering the ego of the man who's paying so it makes this person who's trying to close this deal look important look influential in front of this person just i mean it works really well doesn't it i mean it's to me it makes so much sense and it got even bigger because you know japanese salarymen would start having a ton of foreign clients so then up came these only foreign women you know um Um, hostess bars so those started popping up all around the place which side note there are going to be some racial undertones that we're going to have to go through in this case but i do want to mention side note and it's it might sound weird now but it's going to make sense at the end of this most of the highest respected clubs um are usually all japanese women with very few foreigners Mm -hmm. because there was a lot of um racist undertones later on because um you know we'll we'll get into it So it makes sense. Everybody's a winner. The hostess gets paid. The club gets their, you know, share. And the businessman probably closes the deal. The client has a fun time, especially if they're a foreigner. They're like, oh, my God, what is this land? What an exotic place to be. Why are these girls so into me? Am I that hot? 
<laughs> no, sir, you're not. Okay. <laughs> so you're taught a few things when you first start hostessing, which is how to light a client's cigarette, how to pour his drinks. Don't eat in front of him because it shows lack of subservience. You know, you want to look a little bit more submissive. You shouldn't have your elbows out on the table. If he wants you to be loud, you got to be loud. Now, there was this one hostess who was interviewed and she said, it's kind of degrading. Like at the end of the day, it's not dangerous in my opinion, but I can't say that I enjoyed my time there. I mean, if he wants you to be horny, you got to pretend like you're horny. Like there's no touching or anything, but you got to act like you're just like so attracted by this guy. You know, you just got to be like, oh my God, for some reason, the stars are not aligned. And I know logically it doesn't make sense because when I get off of work, I mean, why can't I go home with you? But it's just like, we can't, you know, there's like these fate is working against us. That's what's happening. Mm. It's like interesting. It's kind of like role play. So she said that, you know, someone would ask me how tall I am and I would tell them and they would tell me how long their penis is. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them was like, well, mine's 50 centimeters long. And his friend was like, well, I beat you because mine's two feet long. And then their third friend, well, he's like, I can jump rope with mine. <laughs> to be fair, it's not even funny because walking is a huge inconvenience for me. You know, it's been difficult. It's like a third leg. What do I do? And she can't laugh. <laughs> no. So she's just sitting there politely being like, oh my gosh, do you guys want another bottle? You know, mm. pouring more drinks. You make them believe that they are the most wonderful person in the world, that you are just dying to jump inside their bed. But you just can't because of, you know, fate, whatever that is. And you're just fascinated by his mundane office stories. But at the end of the night, what's so fascinating about this is I can't imagine that this works in America. Like this only works in places like Japan in my head, right? At the end of the night, even with all of this, sometimes super sexually explicit talk, you guys go your separate ways. Mm. Nobody even asks. None of these men ask, so what are you doing after work? Mm. No one says, what time do you get off? No one says, oh, my hotel's just right around the corner. Nobody. That's very cool. Yeah, it's very interesting. So the more expensive a club, the more intolerant they are of touching the more intolerant they are of groping. Now, Japanese men that are a part of this culture, they know what they're going in for. They're going in for the fantasy, the flirting, the flattery. Most of these men are in their 40s, their 50s. They're businessmen. They're married. They have kids. And these women, they're in their 20s and they're being flattered. Their ego is being boosted by this young 21-year-old who's like, you're the most handsome man I've ever laid my eyes on. Are you George Clooney? Mm -hmm. When did you get here? And most of these clubs say that they have the most difficulty with foreigners. Um, mm -hmm. They have a lot of experiences with foreigners coming in being like wait what the fuck like what do you mean you're not coming home with me well, wh why would you even come on to me so strong then mm. if you're not gonna sleep with me they've had a lot of instances where they had to kick out westerners they're like you are getting rowdy don't touch these women that's not part of it that's not the gig so <laughs> very interesting and a lot of these hostesses, they said, it's not the best work. It's a little bit degrading, but you never really have a situation that you feel like you can't handle. She felt, a lot of these women, they felt safer in the red light district in Tokyo than anywhere in New York City. Wow. Yeah. So what's the pricing for something like this? The way that it works, you walk into... <laughs> I don't think we were wondering it's this. It's really important, okay? So the way that it works, when you walk into one of these hostesses clubs, you pay $200 an hour usually. That's like the average. They have some cheaper ones. They have even more expensive ones. Yet, 200 an hour US dollars? About 200 US dollars an hour. You get unlimited wow. beer and cheap whiskey. So unlimited drinks on the house. And you get the company about one or two hostesses sitting at your table. Now, out of this, the girls were paid um new girls would be only be paid around 20 to 30 dollars an hour 
What? So if you worked five hours a night, six nights a week, which is kind of like the standard schedule for a lot of these women, you were making anywhere between $2,400 to $3,600 a month USD, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, relatively good. But that's not including the bonuses or the commissions, which is where the real money comes in. There's like a whole system to this. So if a man walks in and he requests a specific girl by name, you get an extra $100 for that. Just because, you know, it's like you brought in this business. They mm-hmm. want to see you, so they came to this club. They're assuming this that is, if you... This yeah. is up-to-date price? Yes, yes. Okay. But again, this is like the average. I don't know. There could be... I'm sure there's a ton of clubs that charge way less and a ton that are like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what these prices are. That's like a bajillion dollars. Uh-huh. So this is like what I've seen is everyone says is about the average. 100 to $200 a night or an hour. You know, kind of more closer on the 200 side if I can... If I, you know, my research serves me right. So if you get the client to then order bottles, because like I said, you get unlimited beer and whiskey, but they have these massive champagne bottles that they sell for an average price of like $500. If a girl says, oh, but like, please, I don't really like this whiskey. I don't like beer. I just want some <laughs> champagne. They will get this and they get a commission off of that. But uh-huh. their main money maker is something called a tohan, which is private dates with men. Now, it sounds scary. I was a little bit alarmed, like, oh, Whoa, 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 this suddenly doesn't sound as safe anymore. But essentially what would happen is you go on these dinner dates with these clients. So they take you out to this nice fancy restaurant in Tokyo and immediately after you say, oh, but I have to go into work. And you bring him and his friends in over to the club where then you become their hostess and you get a massive commission to it. Now you're probably thinking that these are optional, right? This this is extra money, a tohan, right? No. These are required. You have to have a certain amount of tohans every single month. Tohan meaning you're bringing a group of client in. Yeah. Going on outside dates because that's Uh. the only way to build rapport with these guys. So at first, you know, if they like you, they might come and request you a couple of times. But if if you don't even kind of somehow entertain them a little bit more outside of work, not in terms of like sexual, right? Not that I'm judging, but just in terms of like they want to build rapport with you. So you go on these dinner dates with them and they feel nice. I mean, think about it. A 50 year old with a 21 year old on his arm. He looks cool. So it's kind of all part of the business. If you don't get enough tohan for the month, you get fired. And these people probably know, right? Yeah, I mean, these men know. They're not like, oh my God, she loves me now. You know, they're not like, oh, I can't wait to take her home. They're like, okay, yeah, she's going to take me to the club. But that's just part of it. You still get what you wanted. This dinner with this beautiful young girl who is listening to your every word like (laughs) you are the next, you know profit you get it so because this is some of the hardest part of the job they said it's incredibly anxiety inducing just getting these tohans you know it's it's a lot i can't imagine it seems so stressful and then the managers of these clubs are a completely different breed these managers are insane so the way that they manage everything because you're still thinking okay you walk into a club maybe it's like a lottery system maybe they take turns the girls take turns and they just sit down and then you know eventually you leave they get their cut no the girls rotate from table to table. Do they do it in a way that makes sense? At first, you don't think so. But the managers, they watch over their girls like a gambler with a hand of cards. It's so fascinating. So every single manager knows exactly all the strengths and the weaknesses of every single girl, and they have to use them carefully. So the hostesses are constantly in and out of each table, and it feels natural to the client. It feels just like a bustling place where these girls aren't even being paid to be here. They just seem like they're just bouncing from table, like, oh, what are you guys talking about? But in reality, 
it's the manager controlling the movement. So right on entering, the customer is, you get that first hour of payment. The customer is immediately seated with the most attractive girls, okay? So they start drinking. Are they connecting, you know? And then the waiter, the waiter is the spy. So the waiters are usually men. They're spying. So they'll be like, okay, boss, like they're not really connecting over there. So then he'll go in and he'll swap these girls out. The main goal is to get to like one hour and one minute because even one second into the second hour, boom, they're charged for that second hour. <laughs> so that's their whole thing, okay? They're trying to get to the second hour. Immediately, they take away the girl that he starts connecting with in the second hour, replaces that girl with, and I quote, an uglier girl. Now, if he wants that prettier girl back, they either say, hey, you got to pay for that. You got to pay to request her. Or, oh, she's like really busy right now. Someone requested her, but she'll be ready in like half an hour. Just like, wait, we'll get you, you know, we'll get you some free food on the house. Just give it a wait. Just 30 minutes. Eventually, they bring her back boom he's in his third hour that's about five hundred dollars and going so then once he gets his girl back then he's like oh well why don't you buy us some champagne you know this girl is like really coming on to him like hey like let's do some champagne again boom five hundred dollars just like that on a bottle of champagne and the manager has all of these crazy cues if a man walks to the bathroom and he checks his watch even once that means he's thinking about leaving so what the manager does is he gets the prettiest girl takes her from the table drops her off at the men's bathroom entrance and she says hello to him grabs him by the hand and walks him back to his table and starts flirting with him until the next hour approaches it's insane this is insane so before you know it these men are spending upwards of a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars if done right all because the manager is good at moving the tables around Man, all these men going home filing bankruptcies <laughs> yeah, after a night. Exactly. <laughs> and they said that the trick is finding the right girls. Now, from what I can tell, all of these interviews done on the streets of Japan, like asking um, Japanese people what they think of hostesses, they say that most of the girls are some of the most street smart, read the room type of gals. They mm -hmm. know how to pick up on social cues really quick. They're really witty and they're really smart because you got to make conversation with these businessmen. Yeah. So it's all about tricking or you know, picking, not tricking these men. <laughs> <laughs> tricking these men into thinking they're amazing. You know, it's right. It's all about picking the right men. So the most successful hostesses, they said, it, um, you know, they're more on the naive side in front of these men. They pretend to be more on the naive side, mm -hmm. more on yeah. the innocent side because customers seem to like having conversations with someone that they perceive to be less intelligent than them. So that's kind of their thing. Now, I do want to put a side note. It sounds amazing, right? Okay, anything that I've watched about this. I saw this one um, Vice, Vice video on YouTube where the number one hostess in a very high-end hostessing club, she makes $50,000 a month. That's insane. So it all sounds amazing. And you're like, oh, I don't ever I don't have to get naked. Like, I don't have to touch anyone. This sounds like easy money, right? But it is still you're dealing you're walking kind of a fine line in terms of even in these interviews. A lot of Japanese men were asked, is it cheating if you go to these hostess clubs? Mm -hmm. And they said, absolutely not. The same men were asked, you know, what would how would you feel if your girlfriend started working here? And they were really upset by that question. So you just have to realize that there are dangers to this. I mean, there are all always going to be very very scary people especially in environments like this so please don't get motivated don't be like i'm booking my ticket to japan right now <laughs> okay <laughs>
So let's talk about Lucy Blackman in the United Kingdom. This is where our story all starts. And guys, it all starts with um, a Goodreads little search that I did. I was browsing through Goodreads and I found this book called People Who Eat Darkness. And I was like, that's a banging title. It's by Richard Lloyd Perry. And I, I had no idea what this book was about. Going in, I knew it was true crime, started reading insane i don't know why i haven't i haven't heard everyone talk about this this case is bonkers this book is bonkers this is the type of book where you want to google the author afterwards and find every single book that they've ever written and read every single word that has ever come out of their mouth because they are that good at writing and this is one of those books so it all starts with lucy from the united kingdom and she was born to a mom jane and dad tim now the way that the parents met is very interesting so tim they're really pivotal parts in all of this, the parents. So that's why I'm going to go a little bit more in depth. So Tim, he had a mutual friend with the mom, Jane, when she was 22 years old. So he had just returned from the south of France where he was staying with his French girlfriend. Yeah, very bougie. And uh, he starts flirting with Jane. And she's like, what? I literally just heard from our mutual friends that you just got back from the south of France with your French girlfriend. So why are you flirting with me? And she immediately just like shut him down. And he was like, oh, my God. She's the girl I got to marry then. How how is she going to shut me down like that? This was like the first person in young 23 year old Tim's life that just didn't fall at his knees. So within 18 months, they get married on his 23rd birthday. So they have their eldest daughter, Lucy, and then they have another daughter, Sophie, and a young son by the name of Rupert. Now, Lucy, her name is the Latin word for light, and she ended up um hating the dark as a kid. So I don't know if that's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And growing up, she was just super conscientious. Like if she was given peas to shell, like her mom was like, hey, I need you to de-shell these edamames, for example. She would examine each single pea and throw away any ones that had imperfections. Just incredibly meticulous, so tidy and so neat. That's kind of Lucy as a person. So when she's young, she starts developing a bit of childhood illnesses. I don't know what these illnesses were. She just kept getting ill Mm. the doctors didn't even know i mean she would be propped up in bed and her mom would try to like smack her back because she had all this like phlegm in her system and she could hear like her her lungs rattling every time she was breathing it was just really alarming so she missed school a lot i mean she didn't make a ton of friends but eventually things start looking up you know and she's 17 years old when she's sitting and watching a movie with her entire family everyone's there she's 17 sophie's 15 and rupert is 13 right so they're all teenagers And the dad, you know, Tim turns to Jane and says, I love being a family. She's like, wow, that's a really crazy moment. Like we're watching this beautiful movie with these beautiful kids of ours. We've been married for 19 years and he loves being a family. The next day, the very next day, Jane gets a phone call from a strange man who says, hey, I just want to let you know that your husband is sleeping with my wife. (laughs) So she confronts Tim and he admits to it and she immediately demands that he moves out. So this is like the divorce. This is, I mean, an earth shattering divorce. Like she had no idea. She didn't see it coming. It was out of nowhere. So now Jane is supporting the three kids. Tim wasn't giving them any money because his company had just gone bankrupt around this time and they move into this smaller house. Now, this house had a weird history, okay? A woman named Diana Goldsmith used to live there. And she just like vanished after dropping off her kids at school. Just like into thin air. 
So the kids, they would make these jokes to their mom and they'd be like, I hope she's not under the bathtub. But they were only half joking. Like they hated it. It was just a shit show. The kids really did not take this divorce easily, especially because it seemed that Tim was going to marry the woman that he was having an affair with, who also had kids of her own. And he was going to live in the same house with the stepkids. Meanwhile, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of emotions of like, what? You're just going to be like a dad to new people now. And like, what about me? That doesn't make any sense. And it made it worse because Jane had a lot of resentment towards the dad. So they kind of felt like, oh, do I have to pick between these two? And Lucy became a mother figure. She was the peacemaker in the house. So the mom and Sophie, her younger sister, constantly fighting. She's the one that's like in the middle, like breaking them apart. And Jane became the child. The mom was just so upset and so depressed that she became a kid. And Lucy, this 17 year old, had to be the mom. She had to take care of her she had to take care of everyone and you can see why she was good at it so lucy's appearance right she's got this beautiful blonde hair she's got these dimples when she smiles these just beautiful blue eyes she's tall and she seems really self-conscious she she, there's um journal entries that she's really anxious about her weight she doesn't like the birthmark on her, her thighs she has this mole in between her brows that everyone thought was charismatic but she you know hated it she was like i don't like this and she was really meticulous with the way that she groomed now i see that um some sources online kind of make it out to be like oh she's so vain she cares so much about her hair she spends hours doing her hair but lucy was so meticulous about everything in life she just wanted everything to be incredibly neat everything to be incredibly tidy so she she would keep these to-do lists on her um, journal these goals she had a library of self-help books in her journal this is her new year's resolution which is making me really ashamed okay go to the gym three to four times a week Learn Italian, scrub and tan every other day, put lotion on days in between, start putting money away starting in March. She also had a separate journal with a list of how to handle men. Wow. So her rules for men, number one, keep cool, let him do all the work, the calling, the everything. Keep your cards close to your chest. If he wants to know how you feel, he's going to ask. Keep chat light. You are not falling for him in all caps. Which kind of makes sense because she did attract a lot of men. She was like almost never without a boyfriend. Men loved her. I don't know if it's the charisma. There was just something about Lucy. That's what everyone says, you know? And her best friend was a Louise Phillips. She's going to end up going to Japan with Lucy. So she's really important. Louise Phillips had been her best friend since they were like 13 years old. They did everything together. Their family called them soulmates. It was just like a thing, you know, and the way that they interacted was that Louise could talk. It's called babbling. They said Louise babbles, Lucy babbles. They just babble, 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 and they just find each other hysterically funny and nobody else finds them funny. (laughs) But them too, they will be in the corner just babbling and laughing at each other. And everyone's like, wow, they are soulmates. Now, Louise, she was a little bit of the opposite of Lucy, really fearless, like really adventurous, just kind of like a wild child. And Lucy's family loved her. But they were kind of worried about her influence. They were like, oh, man, but she's like underage drinking already. You know, there was just a lot of that, like an undertone of like, I love you, but you're so wild. (laughs) What do we do? And Louise loved Lucy. I mean, like loved her to the extent where Louise depended on Lucy almost. So Lucy had stayed with her during her dad's passing, um, during her struggles with anorexia. So they just were bonded, like fused. So right after high school, they get the same job at a French investment bank in london and this is um this is an intense job so lucy was an assistant to the traders so she would go out onto the trading floor and she would input orders as they're being called out by the trading floor now the traders themselves 
they're highly competitive, young, highly paid men. So it's just like a fast paced, super aggressive environment. It's just literally like I'm just picturing Wolf of Wall Street, mm-hmm. but make it French, okay? Like, <laughs> like that type of vibe. And she starts fitting in really well, like so well. This is like her environment. Everything's fast paced. There's like new things going on on her way to work rush hour traffic she's on the train to london she would stand up on a moving train and finish her french manicure perfectly and everyone was like that's so impressive what it doesn't even make sense now because you are working in an environment like this there was a ton of upkeep with this job like you can't just show up with like some ratty clothes you can't like just show up without manicured nails you have to go out with all these co-workers afterwards so her salary was around twenty four thousand um, dollars i know some people like when i do inflation calculations it's like around thirty five thousand dollars in today's money this is in 2000 ish so um yeah it was around twenty four thousand dollars and that is when she initially started going into debt so about a year of working there she's like all right i want a new job i can't do this anymore i keep going into debt i don't like this and you know what i kind of want to travel now the thing with lucy is that she's not the type of backpacker traveler she's not the type that's like you know what i want to go to all these countries with my little backpack stay in these hostels and just like really experience the culture you know she's like the type that's like i want a hotel with a hairdryer in there and that's completely fine that's just who she was so she applied to be a flight attendant at british airways so she goes through this month-long training course they teach you some crazy stuff how to deliver a baby how to put on handcuffs and how to deal with an onboard bomb you know just really intense so for the first 18 months because there's a hierarchy in flight attendants which like oh my gosh if i could get into like a whole podcast on flight attendant hierarchies it's insane we have a family friend who was a flight attendant for korean air the stories that you hear the stories so 18 months of her first initial you know from getting hired she worked mainly domestic short flights so this isn't really the traveling that she was expecting like this sucks i'm like still in the uk and then whenever she started doing long haul trips to foreign countries she's like this sucks i am so jet lagged i'm so exhausted i go to the hotel room i barely know what time it is and i sleep the whole time i'm not experiencing shit like what are you what am i doing with my life you know and so by the early 2000s she's like i can't do this anymore i'm still in debt i just i need to do something different so louise phillips who is also a flight attendant (laughs) her best friend also moved into british airways with her she's like why don't we move to Japan? No, no, no. I know it sounds crazy. Okay, think about it. Just a couple of months, my sister went there. So my older sister was in Japan two years ago. You can live an exciting life and earn a crap ton of money. No, listen, Lucy, we can go for like three months. We will have so much fun. You and me in this crazy new city. You've never even been to Tokyo. It's going to be crazy, okay? And then you're going to make all of this extra cash. You're going to pay off all your debts in three months. Are you kidding? You can't do that in the UK. That's what we're going to do. So she knew about Hostess. Yeah, she was like, my sister, you know, she had so much fun two years ago. We can do the same thing. And she made so much money. And I will pay for half of your plane ticket. So Lucy just felt like, I mean, shit, like there's, this is an amazing opportunity. So they tell Jane's, or they tell Lucy's parents, Jane, and they're like, all right, well, Louise's aunt lives in Tokyo and we can stay there rent free. Can we go? Wait, did they tell the parents what they're doing? Not initially. 
They won't tell them until they get there. They said that there are some money-making opportunities, but they were very vague. <laughs> okay. So they were kind of, you know, marketing this to their parents as um, like a foreign opportunity, kind of how you would think, oh, oh, if an American goes to Korea, you might immediately assume, oh, English teacher, right? So kind of like that, kind of up in the air, kind of like, well, you know, there's just, there's money to be made. And so they were like, well, her, her aunt lives in Tokyo, so it's not like we'd be staying at like a random place. This wasn't true. Oh, her, they don't have an aunt. No, her aunt is married to a Japanese man, I believe, but they live in London. Uh, they don't live in Tokyo. Yeah. So they were just like making shit up. Okay. Just to make Jane feel a little bit better. And it was working. But Jane tried really hard. She did not like the idea of her going to Tokyo, especially for months. So she started um, getting newspaper clippings of how shitty the economy was in Tokyo and just like leaving it in Lucy's room. Like, <laughs> how are you going to pay off your debt when their economy is not doing well? And it just didn't work. Okay. Lucy was like, I'm going to go. I already made this commitment. Now, before Tokyo, Lucy was acting a little bit strange. That's what people said. She was doing this really intense spring cleaning spree but it was even extreme for her standards you know just really intense she bought this new $1,500 bed so at this point now she's around $10,000 in debt and she just kept saying like oh, I'm excited to like sleep on my bed when I get back she seemed really reluctant people stated that it seemed like she was talking herself into wanting to go to Tokyo okay now Lucy also you know what people say is she seems like the type of person that would just want to go through with her commitments if she told Louise she's going to do something Louise is so excited about it she's not going to really pull back so she's like you know what it's only like three months it's going to be fine she writes in her journal while she's traveling and she says I am sitting on a suitcase at the railway underground feeling completely overwhelmed I'm very tired also afraid anxious lost and so hot wait this is where is she what do you mean? Just well? arrived in Tokyo ah, at the airport. I see. Yeah. So, you know, she gets to Tokyo. Her family is like, okay, it's just three months. You know, she's 21 now. We got to let her shine. She's going to be back. Her debt's going to be paid off. It's good. So now that I said the aunt lives in London, they have nowhere to stay in Japan. But her older sister had called another hostess that she had met and was like, hey, do you remember me from like a couple years ago? We used to hostess at this place together. Do you think that you can get a place for my sister to stay and like her other friend? Please, 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 please. So they get a room at what's called the Sasasaki house. And they knew it wasn't going to be lavish they knew it was probably going to give them like hostile vibes but instead it was worse it was filled with a bunch of foreigners and they were just non-stop smoking weed which is incredibly illegal in asia especially japan and um you couldn't even see through the lobby because of the smoke is what they said it, they said it was filthy the mirrors were cracked there was just like futon mattresses on the ground with no sheets they called it the shit house the bathroom six different people share it and they said it was really vile just like not a homey place so I'm sure that was adding to a lot of like the, oh my God, that Lucy yeah. was feeling. So immediately the girl that was helping, um, Louise's older sister's friend, right, that had got them this place was like, here's a list of clubs that we recommend, you know, that your sister and I put together. So just kind of like whenever you're done settling in, go by and they should have some vacancies and you can start working literally tomorrow. So they're like, oh, amazing. So they go to the first club. They have no vacancies. The second club, immediately, they're asked, what's your age, nationality, where are you staying? And they're offered jobs on the spot. So within days of arriving, they are now hostesses. Do they have trainings? There's like a one-day training where they teach you how to light cigarettes and pour drinks, and that's it. <laughs> and they also are on a travel visa, which prohibits them from working. 
but they're working under the table, you know? I see. Okay. So they start working and the clients who loved Lucy really loved her. They said that, you know, all the other hostesses that met her said she's really different from Canadians and Americans. Yeah. She says, um, you know, Canadians and Americans, they have these big laughs and they're a little bit too lively sometimes, especially for Japanese men. <laughs> sometimes, you know, it's just a lot. <laughs> oh, man. I can so yeah. totally see that. But with Lucy, her conversations weren't over the top. Like, she seemed mm. really authentic. And I think a lot of men gravitated towards that. They were like, oh, she genuinely seems like she likes me. And she's not doing these fake laughs because I'm like, wait, I didn't even say anything funny. Why is she laughing? You know, <laughs> you know those moments. <laughs> and she just looked very gentle and refined. And she had this like grace about her. She, it, you can almost immediately tell that she comes from good education. She's cultured. She's really well-spoken. All of that. So when Lucy is emailing her friends back at home, she's saying things like, you know, I'm earning good money. It is so different from the United Kingdom. The men are so respectful. Obviously, you get the odd one. But so far, I've only met really nice people so the odd one that she was referring to is um a man walked in and offered her fifteen thousand dollars to sleep with him fifteen thousand u.s dollars yeah and uh she was pissed she went straight up to the manager and was like you better kick him out and he got kicked out wow yeah so she's working. Louise honestly does a little bit better than Lucy because like I said, the people who love Lucy love Lucy. But Louise is just extroverted. Like her personality is super outgoing. So it was very easy for her to build rapport with these clients. Now, once they get off of work, they change and it's about 2 a.m. Now they have a choice. You either go home and you sleep in this shit house that they call mm-hmm. or you go drinking. But if you go drinking, they said the the bars in Tokyo are so cool that you stay out till seven in the morning. Like there is no way that you get in, you know, before that. And then what's even crazier is that some of these bars that the hostesses had connections to, you can go to them and get paid more. So if you are a female at this bar and a male buys you a drink, you can make commission off of that. There was a woman mm. that these hostesses knew that was making like $4,500 a month just going to these bars at night and having men pay for her drinks. And she would make a commission off of that. So Louise loved going out. So it seems like most of the nights that they were in Tokyo, they went out. <laughs> and Lucy, I mean, don't get me wrong. She liked partying. She liked a good club. She liked a good bar night. But she didn't seem all that happy. That's what everyone said. It seemed like she was a little bit more stressed. And I think it was it was the debt. You know, she realized with all of these expenses in Tokyo, it would take a lot longer to pay off her debt. Way more than three months. So now she has all of this stress and she starts writing in her diary. I am so fucking up to my neck in debt and i so badly need to do well this is not a bad thing to do with lou i'm really happy for her but i'm a crap hostess i've had one tohan only because of shannon another one stood me up i mean how shit must you be for a tohan to stand you up louise gets all these men just like falling over themselves to request her and i get stood up And she talks about how extremely hard and emotionally taxing Tokyo is. She calls Tokyo the extreme land. You're either high as a kite or lower than you can imagine here. There is nothing in between the two. She started writing, I don't know what's wrong with this place, but it seems to be bringing out the absolute worst in me. I cannot stop crying. I have such pain in my stomach, like a real physical symptom of feeling absolutely crushed. I'm cried out like tears don't even come out anymore. They only come in exhausted waves. I feel so ugly and fat and invisible here. I constantly hate myself. I'm so average. Every single part of me from head to toe is completely average. Now, if you see a picture of Lucy, she is the only one that would think that. 
She's beautiful. And she continues to write, I must have been kidding myself that I could make it out here. I hate the way I look. I hate my hair. I hate my face. I hate my nose. I hate my slanty eyes. I hate the mole on my face. I hate my profile. I hate my neck. I hate my boobs. I hate my fat hips. I hate my fat stomach. I hate my flabby bum. I hate my birthmark. And I hate my bashed up legs. I feel so disgusting and ugly and average. It's really heartbreaking. Um... So these are a big portion of her journal entries. And then it starts getting better in June. So Louise, she she made a boyfriend, a French man by the name of Combe, like Lancome. That's how they described it, like saying Lancome, but just the Combe. So that's his name. And he was like, oh, let me introduce your good friend Lucy to a friend that I have. I think that they're going to get along amazing. So they meet up at a bar and she gets introduced to Scott, who she later emails her friend and says, is the sex god of the century is scott so he's a 20 year old american from texas he's got this accent that makes you melt which is like the first time (laughs) (laughs) yeah she's from she's british Uh and she thinks the american accent is like the sexiest one like just makes you melt maybe he has like a southern accent i'm assuming like a texan accent maybe Maybe, she like that accent makes me melt i'm like what (laughs) (laughs) i feel so honored (laughs) you know he's got these blue eyes he's six two and get this He's a man in uniform. He's part of the U.S. Navy Marines and he's based in Japan. So for the next month, they start dating. And in her journal entries, you can see her start getting excited in June. Now, she disappears July 1st. So keep this in mind. This is like the month right before her disappearance. Okay, so they they share their first kiss on a bridge overlooking these trees. She writes in her diary like this is the first time I'm like 100 percent content since I can remember I mean, things were looking great. She finally developed a roster of clients who come in requesting her. You know, she's making better money. They're getting paid on Monday. Everything's looking good. And then July 1st, 2000 comes around. It was a Saturday and she was only 21 years old. And she will vanish. So the day that she goes missing, she had an appointment to meet a Tohan, right? So she's going to go to lunch with this client and then she's going to, I think they were going to go to dinner or something of that sort, okay? They were going to spend a couple of hours from 3.30 to like maybe 7 o'clock and then she would come home, get ready to go to the club and then he would meet them at the club later. So that was her plan. She gets a phone call at the communal phone inside of this shit house, as they call it, and it's the client and he's like, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to be 30 minutes late. So she's like, oh, that's fine. And she tells Louise like it's going to be fine. I'm just going to go meet him and then I'll be right back. So she goes off and around five o'clock, Louise gets a phone call from an unknown number. She picks it up and it's Lucy. Lucy's like, hey, like I'm excited for tonight. Like I'm really excited. But right now I'm headed to the seaside. He's going to take me to the beach and we're going to have lunch at the beach. Don't worry. I know that sounds like it's super far, but no need to change plans. I'm still going to be home at the same time. Like I'm still going to get ready with you and then we're going to head to the club. Okay. Like I'm going to be back in an hour or two. I'll see you soon. Mm -hmm. Now, this is kind of weird because this was very unlike Lucy to just like leave Tokyo with a unknown man, you know, like a client that just doesn't seem like her. But at the same time, it is so very much like Lucy to call Louise and let her know. So Louise was kind of feeling uneasy about this. Now, what's very interesting is that for some reason, Louise had no information about this client. I think maybe she had a name that wasn't his real name we later find out but nothing really else so then lucy calls again a little after seven and she's like hey like he's so nice guess what he promised to buy me a phone because like i'd broken my phone you know and i'm using the communal phone so he's gonna buy me a phone he said that i can take home this bottle of dom the really expensive champagne and we can drink it later so i'll be back in an hour i know it's a little bit late but like i'll be back in an hour Mm -hmm. so louise is like okay like just be safe i'll see you in one hour on the dot okay bye 
So then Lucy calls Scott, her boyfriend, from the same phone, and he doesn't pick up. So she just leaves a message, and she sounds really happy, and she just says, oh, I can't wait to see you tomorrow. So she's making plans with people. And then she is never seen from again. She's never heard from again. She just vanishes. She's gone. So when Lucy is late by more than an hour, Louise starts, you know, freaking out. She's like, no, 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 this is this is not like her. Lucy is always on time. She actually calls her mom in the United Kingdom and saying something's happened to Lucy. I don't know what to do. And her mom's like, it's okay. She's only an hour late. Calm down. Everything's going to be good. So then Louise goes to the club that they work at and she's like, hey, boss, uh, Lucy's missing. They're like, what do you mean she's missing? She went on a tour and she was supposed to be back an hour ago and she's not back. And they're looking at her like she's crazy. Like she was supposed to be back at eight. It's like nine o'clock. Like calm your tits. It's not like three in the morning. Like it's normal. It's nothing strange. Maybe it's the traffic. And she's like, no, no, no. This is unlike her. So she and another coworker, they go literally from every single club, every single restaurant that her and Lucy had ever visited. Maybe she's there, but she is not there. So her fellow coworker starts calling all these local hospitals. None of them have heard of Lucy. None of them said that they have this, you know, British woman that checked in. Nobody said of anything of a car accident. Nothing. Maybe she's spending the night with this customer, but she would never, you know, she's saying she would, she called me twice today. If she was changing plans, she would have called me. This isn't making sense. So why don't they go to the police station, right? Well, like I said, they were on tourist visas. This is a 90 day visa. It's not like she disappeared when she was buying something at 7-Eleven. Like she went on a toan. Like, how would you explain that? So it was just all sorts of complex. And then finally, Another day passes. So she's like, okay, I got to go into the police station. I'm going to completely leave out the part of hostessing. And I'm just going to file, you know, a missing persons report. Say that she's a tourist who went missing after meeting up with a Japanese man. And I'm going to mention no work. Now, the police, they take this and they do not care at all. Really? Yeah, they're like, well, maybe she's on a date. Like, maybe, you know, she's a little lost. They don't care. So she goes straight to the British embassy. She's like, I don't think so. So she walks into the British embassy in Tokyo and they cared a little bit more, but they were still victim blaming. They were like, well, why would she get into the car of an unknown Japanese man? You know, that doesn't make sense. She's on holiday with you. And she started saying, "Okay, fine. We were hostessing. So she tells the British embassy exactly what they were doing. They're like, what? That sounds crazy. They just these businesses just want you to go on dates with these strange men. She's like, that's not the point. My friend is missing. And they're like, well, we'll, we'll keep a lookout. We'll, we'll stay in contact with the Tokyo Metropolitan Police, but there's nothing we can do. So she's like, ah, useless. So then as she's walking out, she gets a phone call from an unknown number. So she picks it up. She's like, oh, my God, it's got to be Lucy, right? And it's a man's voice who is confidently speaking English, but he's doing it with a distinct Japanese accent. And he seems super calm. And he says, am I speaking to Louise Phillips? My name is Akita Takagi. And I'm ringing on behalf of Lucy Blackman. Lucy? Like, where is she? Oh, my God. Like, I'm so worried, okay? Well, can I talk to her? I am with her. She is here. She is fine. But she must not be disturbed now. Anyway, she is in our dormitory. She is studying and practicing a new way of life. She has so much to learn this week. She cannot be disturbed, okay? So what happened was I met up with her. And just before I put her on a train to go meet you that night, Saturday, she met up with my guru. And they made this life-changing decision in a split second. Anyway, she's decided that she's going to be joining our cult now. He said cult? He said cult. Okay. <laughs> You're like, that seems like not good marketing. Yeah, he said cult. And so she's like, what? No, let me talk to her. That sounds crazy. She's not even a religious person. Like she's never really been religious. What are you talking about? She's not feeling well. She doesn't want to talk to anyone. Maybe she'll call you at the end of the week. But she started a new life and she won't be coming back. I know that she's in debt and she's paying them off, but in a better way. 
What? Anyway, she wants you and Scotto, so I guess that's how they say Scott, to know that she's okay. She's just planning a better life. So this person knows a lot about her. You know, she's yeah. in debt. She's dating someone named Scott. Just, just a lot is happening. She has written a letter to her employer to let them know that she's not coming back to work. Now, Louise, what's your address? Why do you need to know that? I will be sending some of her belongings. Well, Lucy knows. I mean, it's her address too. Yeah. Like I said, she's not feeling too well and she can't remember. Well, well, I can't remember either. And there's just silence. So then she starts begging. Okay, you know what? Like, I got to get my Lucy back. So she's like, hey, I want to join this cult too. Like, I know that we didn't really say anything, but it sounds really good. And I, I just want to be with Lucy. And I, I, I'm really excited. I can convert. We're, we were both Roman Catholics, but I love cults. Like She's like really trying to be a part of this cult. And That's he tells, a good, yeah, a good friend, yeah. yeah, really good friend. And they said, anyway, I have to go now. I'm sorry. I just had to let you know that you won't see her again. Goodbye. So they hang up. So you're saying the sound, she feel like it was a foreigner. It wasn't a Japanese person. No, she's saying it was a Japanese person, oh. but they knew English really well, more so than the average Japanese person would know. So, I mean, it was very interesting. This summer, I'm trying to be the main character. I'm trying to eat out in the garden, which is just a small patch of grass that I have, okay? Put the guards in. I'm trying to sunbathe in the sun. I'm trying to read books outside. And the easiest way to do this, because you need that comfortable outdoor furniture to really soak in the vitamin D. And if you guys don't know, Article is one of my favorite furniture places right now. So they combine the curation of boutique furniture store with the comfort and simplicity of shopping online. They have a team of Designers that focus on beautifully crafted pieces, quality materials, and durable construction. They're actually inspired by a variety of modern design aesthetics. So if you like mid-century modern, if you like Scandinavian, industrial, bohemian, this is the place for you. On top of that, they have fair prices. This is the best part. You save up to 30% over traditional retail prices. And the way that they're able to do this is by cutting out that middleman and selling directly to you. So no showrooms, no salespeople that are like, hey, uh, how's that couch? No retail markups. They also have fast, affordable shipping available across the USA and Canada and is free on orders over $999. Right now, my favorite collection is the newest outdoor look called Garden Terrace. Literally looks like that. It's handpicked series features laid-back, elegant designs for outdoor lounging, dining, and more. So I'm talking lunch in the garden. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Go to article.com slash rotten and the discount code will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash rotten to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. So within a week, the press start picking up on this. You know, she goes to the police and all the press, they start picking up it in the UK. They're saying British Airways stewardess, you know, flight attendant kidnapped, cult in Japan forced her into sex work. Her dad and her sister are now flying to Tokyo. Like it just was, it was going crazy. 20 British reporters flew out to Tokyo. And that's just, that's just the ones that were connected to major networks. You had freelance reporters that were headed out there. You had freelance British reporters that were based in Tokyo. And it was just a combination of everything her past job as a flight attendant you know her age 21 she's british she's got blonde hair the job that she was in so everyone's like oh i heard she's doing hostessing now and everyone in, in these other westerner countries were like what the fuck is hostessing and it just opened these doors to this explosive like what 
is happening right now so they get there and she becomes essentially you know the book describes her as like this poster child for the young woman who meets her end in an exotic land everything was made very like oh japan what's going on in tokyo like it was just made really intense you know Mm. and so the family they get to tokyo the tokyo police don't give a fork they do not care they just don't care at all so the family they're faced with this choice of either usually international cases they're freaking out yeah because so she was working as a hostess and it seems like every um country has this universal underlying Uh. tone of anything remotely related to sex work is not something we care about that's so (sighs) odd because you're saying like like most japanese men or society have the respect at least to respect these women but i guess they're is still underlying like a stigma like it would be very different i guess if she was like um like a student you're saying that was the reason the cops yeah initially and then and then it blows up because the prime ministers get involved it gets real crazy yeah it gets crazy so now the family they're not getting anything from the police the police don't really want to talk to them they don't do anything with them so now they have this choice of choosing the media or the police which this book also draws a lot of attention towards how families of missing family members have to react if you choose the media if you are comfy comfy Mm. with the media your story gets out there it puts pressure on the police but now the police almost see you as an enemy but if you are, you know, happy, happy with the police, then maybe they're not doing their best job and you can't say anything in the media. So the question is, who do you choose? I choose the media. Yeah. Because I think too. pressure is the best thing to put on any yeah. institution. Yeah, because you can't count on them. No, because they might tell you they're doing everything they can, but they're not doing everything they can until the whole world is talking about it. Then yeah. they start doing everything they can. So they um, they didn't really have a choice because Luis's sister in the UK did an interview. So to the Tokyo police, it was like, oh, well, you guys chose the media. So now, you know, Tim Blackman, the dad who had just come, and Sophie, she flies to Tokyo and they start doing interviews and these were some explosive titles all of them were like lucy being held as a sex slave by evil japanese cult now mind you it was just like five years ago when we talked about um well we didn't talk about it five years ago but five years prior to this was am shinrikyo the the japanese cult that tried to blew up the train yes so i mean the cult talk was like really hyped up they were like evil japanese cult sex slave blonde woman ah it was just a lot so tim and sophie they start doing these press conferences and it was not what anyone was expecting which just made the story blow up even more so the way that these families in japan operate is if you have a missing child you do a press conference and you look down you say very few words you express love for your child you ask the community for help there would be tears but at the end you apologize for causing inconvenience in the community okay now in the western world it's less apologetic right like we've seen it we're all part of this true crime community but you still see like really tearful cries there's like this unspoken code for missing family members where you have to show emotions show like i'm a mom that's grieving for my child tim did not care about this code at all he didn't care he did not care he was super composed he showed no obvious emotions and he was so straight to the point you would think that this is a police officer not a family member so when they asked well well what about that cult that phone call with that cult He would say, yeah, well, Lucy's a Roman Catholic and she just really didn't have great interest in religion anyway. So the thought that she might suddenly become interested in a religious cult over a Saturday afternoon is highly unlikely. Like just really composed and straight to the point where people were kind of getting confused. Like, wait, how do I feel about this? It kind of gives me reassurance that he knows Lucy, 
really uh-huh. well, but also it's just so weird. At one point, they ask the sister, Sophie, like, did you hear about her boyfriend? Doesn't she have like an American boyfriend in Japan? Mm-hmm. And the sister says, yeah, of course she mentioned him. She's my sister. She met him here and they're dating. That's all you need to know. The details of anything else are none of your business. So they're like, what's going on with this family? It's getting confusing. Now, the timing of everything really worked in the family's favor because the 26th G8 summit, where all the world's strongest leaders from the most powerful countries meet, was taking place in Japan. So the whole world was watching Japan. The British okay. prime minister was about to show up in Japan. So now Tim is like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to keep, you know, pushing this story out there. And he was really good about the marketing, which is crazy because there's marketing with missing people. Is that not insane? <sighs> so Westerners have no idea what, you know, host is seeing is. So most of them will assume it's sex work because they have no idea. And then once it's sex work, you know, in the Western world, we suddenly stop caring because, oh, the victim is a sex worker, right? But he did it in a way that marketed Lucy as this naive girl who came to this foreign country, 21 years old, with a sparkle in her eye. And she was just excited for what life had to offer. And she was in over her head. And all these parents started relating because they're like, oh, my God, my kids, you know, they're they would be so excited to travel. They would be in over their heads. So he immediately took that hostessing gray area out of the conversation. And most people called her a British Airways stewardess for the titles. So the press in turn also started getting a little bit racist, okay? So they started saying things like the Japanese male and his penchant for Western blondes. The men in Japan can be twisted sexually because of their restricted upbringing. They were just saying a lot of stuff like that, okay? It was just not cool. So this is happening in the UK, these yeah. news? In the UK, the Western world is talking about it like that. Japan is feeling very uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. And also, here's what I thought, you know, side note, of when you have missing people in foreign countries, these press conferences can be so tricky because you want to be like, please help me. But it, there's this thin line of like, hey, one of you did something. You know, to one of us, like kind of like this thin line of coming into their country and like pointing like someone help me now, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it was like a very thin line that the press was also walking. It was just a lot, a lot of undertones of weirdness. And then there was obviously pushback from these Asian countries who saw these headlines that were like, oh, usually it's Western men who come here and try to take advantage of Asian women. But what's going on? Suddenly it's not. Like it was just like this back and forth of nonsense. But still, most importantly, it doesn't matter because Lucy Blackman is missing. That's all that matters. And Tim and the Blackmans, they would go out to dinner with these journalists. Like they were really in cahoots with them, like trying to get them on their side, push out this story. Finally, the sixth press conference in like two weeks, Tim cried for the first time. Journalists were all over this. They finally got that picture that they needed for the front page. Morning dad, grieves missing daughter. That's what they wanted. Tim later told um, Richard Perry, the author of the book, I probably shouldn't be telling you this, but the tears, well, we planned that in advance. Like everything they were doing was marketed, which sounds crazy, but can you blame them? I mean, that is how the way the world works. You need press to find missing people. How do you get the press interested? Marketing. Crazy. (laughs) Crazy. It's so sad, but it makes sense, you know? Yeah. So like, would you say it was effective? It was so effective. He met up with a British prime minister. The British prime minister met up with the family at the height of his power, at the height. And at the summit afterwards, he went up to the prime minister of Japan and said, thank you for the Tokyo police for their efforts. And we ask everything possible 
to be done to find Lucy and bring her home. Wait. So how did he get to the prime minister? Because the、uh, the UK prime minister asked the Japanese prime minister. It was prime minister to prime minister at the G8 summit. Oh, so the father never personally. No, the father met the UK prime minister because the、oh. press was blowing up.、Okay. So he met up with his prime minister, and then you know the British prime minister went to the Japanese prime minister. But like, imagine the pressure of Japan now. They're like, okay, well now we have to do something for sure, and it worked because Japan started getting stressed, and it went from a simple missing persons to a full blown criminal investigation. They put some of their best officers on there. The one officer that worked,、um, that was like the head of the, you know, Amshinrico case that we talked about. He was put on this case as well. So he's doing this case. Forty detectives were working on the case. There were multiple volunteers. They put up thirty thousand posters of Lucy Blackman all over Tokyo, and a British man by the name of Hugh. Out of nowhere, comes up to Tim after like a press conference, just hands him five thousand dollars, and is like, "You're probably spending a lot of money living here, looking for your daughter." And、he's like, I'm a finance guy from the UK, but now I'm based in Tokyo. Hey, I have an office. Why don't you set up a tip line, like an anonymous tip line? Because I heard, you know, Lucy was in hostessing, and there's probably a lot of hostesses who don't really want to call the police. You know, they probably want to call an anonymous tip line. So I can rent you like for free. You can have a little space in the office and do your thing. So it was kind of like this British to British, like we got each other's back type of moment. And they were really, really thankful. So they set up a tip line. That same British man. Really、uh, good entrepreneur, I guess. He told the owner of the local restaurant that he loves, "Anytime if Sophie and Tim come here, they eat for free. Put it on my tab." Wow! So he was really helping out a lot. Either he's a really nice person, or he's、uh, up to something. He's really nice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's gonna be people who are up to something. So that tip line at first it didn't provide much. You know, there was one man who called and said, "Can I take Sophie out on a date because I think she's cool." Read the room, but yeah, obviously that didn't work. And then suddenly a Japanese man calls into the tip line, and we're gonna call him Mr. O. So all of their identities are hidden. A lot of the other victims we'll get into their identities are、um, hidden. So this Japanese man calls, and he seems really excited and agitated, just kind of not normal, almost like oh my god, like freaking out. And he says, "I have crucial information, but I can only tell you in person." So of course Tim is like, well, I'm gonna go. So he goes to his apartment, and this is、um, not a regular apartment. Every single room was filled with lights, cameras, beds. There was machines of videotapes everywhere. Naked women posters all over the walls. This man was in his forties, and he used to run a computer business. But now he's a porn producer.、Hmm. So he says, "Listen, I'm a porn producer now, but on the side." I'm a I'm a sadomasochist. I'm a part of the S and M community, you know. And、uh, I I had this circle where we would share these videos, these magazines. Sometimes we would have these orgies where we hired sex workers, and it was just like fifty people just like having this massive orgy. Anyway, that's besides the point. A few years ago, I used to be a member of this circle run by Mr. M. His identity is hidden too, Mr. M. He was obsessed with the idea of kidnapping a Western woman. Having sadistic sex with her, a blonde woman, you know, with big breasts—that's what he wanted. And、um, he would film a scene where he would torture her to death, like a snuff film. So I decided, you know, this circle is too deep for me. I can't do this. So I dropped out. I joined a new circle. But I had a good mutual friend, you know, and his name is Mr. T, and he's still part of that circle. So then one day, Mr. T comes to me. And mind you, this is a respectable man. He is a family man with wife and kids, and he's a senior manager at Fuji Film. Yeah, Fuji Film, the one that we know, Fuji Film, the the Polaroid company. I'm、mm-hmm. sure they're known for a lot more than the Polaroids, but you get it. And so he's like, well, he came to me and he said, "Hey, I think I know what happened to that missing girl." What? Mr. M finally did it. What do you mean? 
Maybe do you think he has a video of it? Do you think we should go to his place and try to steal his video? Did you know that Mr. M bought a new dungeon recently? He rented this new place, outfitted it as this crazy dungeon. But usually you show this type of stuff off to your S&M circles. You take pictures, you invite them over, right? You test it out, you break it in. But he didn't. He wouldn't allow any of us near his S&M circle, like his room, his dungeon. He wouldn't even tell us where it's located. Isn't that weird? Don't you think it's him? Don't you think he killed Lucy Blackman? Don't you think so? Is he excited? Seems like it. Oh, wow. So he's like, what? That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And he says, but it does. Because he was telling me that after he kidnaps and kills a foreign woman, he is going to um, call the family and say that she joined a cult. What? Now, at this point, Mr. O is like, okay, there's something going on here because Mr. M has always been known for treating women like dolls. That's what he says. This is the type of person who would kill a woman and think nothing of it because they're like dolls to him. Just a misogynistic, raging murderer is the vibe that we're getting from this guy. So the producer, he, the porn producer, Mr. O, goes to the police and they do absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. So two weeks pass and he gets a phone call from uh, Mr. T's wife. And she's like, hey, I know you guys are friends. He hasn't come home from work. He's been missing. Now, what? The wait, wait, wait. Reverse Mr. That? T is the mutual friend. Oh, that and the says, wife is calling? Yeah. He's like, I know you guys are like business partners and friends. You know, like what happened? Do you know where he is? Now, the wife doesn't know that he, Mr. T, also has his own dungeon. It seems like all these family men have this own little rented apartment in secret from their wives. And they have a little dungeon. So, you know, the porn producer, Mr. O, he knows about this dungeon. The wife doesn't. So he's like, okay, well, I'm going to check up on him in his little dungeon. So he goes to his little S&M dungeon. He's knocking. No reply. He tries to, you know, unlock the door and it's unlocked. He opens the door. Mr. T's shoes are at the entrance. So he must be here. But there's like this strong smell. So he walks inside and there's these pale legs, just super pale near the cupboards he rushes over mr t is dead there is a rope around his neck he is naked from the west waist down and he has poop he has feces in his mouth and all over his face smeared and all the walls are covered with posters of lucy blackman's missing poster what so he calls the police the police investigate but they deem that he died of asphyxia he was masturbating but he cut off his oxygen supply to get a deeper arousal and it has caused a lot of deaths in the past year or so you know in tokyo and across the world so they tell the family that the family usually gets so embarrassed that they just straight up tell everyone that they died of suicide but the porn producer he doesn't believe it he believes because it's the poop in the mouth in S&M culture. He said, I don't know if this is true, but in their little community, if the poop in your mouth belonged to sorry, that sounds kind of crazy. Sorry. If the poop in your mouth belonged to another person, it's kinky. It's not your poop. But if you, it's your poop, it's a sign of disrespect. It's it's an insult. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, you know, it's almost like doing defacing yeah. someone. It's really it's really bad. So the porn producer believes that Mr. M killed Lucy Blackman, and then Mr. T found out, and he was killed. So Tim's like, oh my God, this is a lot. Like, also imagine, you know, now you're saying she's not just vanished, but she's murdered in one of the most horrendous ways possible. Like, that's a lot. So they track down Mr. M's dungeon. They track it down, and they break in. They find a TV and a video player, mattresses on the floor, porn magazines everywhere, porn videos everywhere, dildos, clamps, harnesses, just lots of instruments of humiliation wait, and pain. Wait, wait, wait. So right now the cops are investigating? No. 
Tim broke into the apartment. Oh, Tim did. Yeah, the dad. Oh, I you the dad broke into yeah. Mr. M's dungeon. Yeah, because how did he even find it? They um. So Tim's brother-in-law is a wealthy businessman, and he was paying for a lot of private investigators. They spent like okay. I want to say like over hundreds of thousands of dollars on private investigators. So they tracked down Mr. M's dungeon and they found all these like crazy things, you know, instruments of humiliation, pain, all of that. They scanned the floor for any blonde hairs and they couldn't find anything. They even stalked Mr. M at one point. Nothing strange there. So it kind of seemed like a dead end. The police weren't interested. The porn producer started getting weird. He started getting too excited. Like he was like a, in an action movie, you know? Like he's just like, we gotta, we gotta like sneak in and put on these masks and shit. And they were just like, all right, maybe it's like a grudge between these two. Like what's going on? Maybe it's like something personal and not about Lucy at all. Maybe it's him. But it's not later. But like, I mean, yeah, maybe it is him, right? So it was just all sorts of weird. And the whole family, they were just facing constant fake leads and constant scams. I mean, just tens of thousands of dollars of scams. Now, the police, they've got this high pressure now. You know, the Japanese prime minister specifically told the police, you better get this freaking solved. Mm -hmm. So they start going through the list of suspects. The first one is a client. His name is, let's call him Ken, okay? So his name is omitted. Mm -hmm. So let's call him Ken for the purpose of this, right? He comes in every night for weeks. He speaks good English. He's a man in his 40s. He's unmarried. And he constantly talks about how lonely he is. He spends tons of money on her. And he sent her a ton of emails. Now, Sophie, the younger sister of Lucy, thankfully, Sophie had the password to Lucy's emails. So she can see all of her email correspondence. And he seemed obsessive. He would talk almost like he's like a, like a middle schooler in love. You know, just like if she doesn't respond, he would be like, oh, I guess I ruined this relationship. Ha 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 ha. You know, kind of like that type of energy. And it was just um, really unsettling for everyone. He even started noticing when she started dating Scott because he would send emails. Obviously, she's not going around telling him that she has a boyfriend. But it seemed like he knew what was happening because he kept saying, I, I know, like I understand the hostess job is draining a lot of energy from you, but I'm sure my small heart is to be broken as usual. But it's okay. Ha ha ha. <laughs> because she was like pulling away from him you know she would mm -hmm. go on these toans from him and she would zone out and think about scott or maybe she wasn't as into him anymore mm -hmm. and so he started noticing and he would send these emails sometimes he would spend multiple emails a day they look into his finances he's a struggling businessman so he's spending a ton of money when his business is under fire so this sounds like a recipe for a disaster this sounds like he's gonna snap but when they question him he has an alibi he is honest and he is just kind of a weirdo that's it he's cleared so then the next next session is Scott, Scott Frazier, the American man, the U.S. Navy Marine. But his alibi was airtight. He was on board of the USS Kitty Hawk at the time that she went missing. And he was really straightforward and honest. There didn't seem to be anything weird. So then the last suspect is Louise Phillips, the best friend. You know, the police are like, this, this makes sense. I mean, you guys spend every single day together and you have no idea who took her. You have no idea whose car she went into. You were the only one that, you know, had this random phone call from this cult leader. You're the one that reported her missing. You're the one that last saw her. Maybe, maybe you guys came out here and you guys started fighting. Do you like Scott? Maybe that's, is this a love triangle? And they would just spend days grilling poor Louise, like straight up for a whole day. They interrogated her for like eight hours asking her if Lucy ever had chlamydia. She's like, what are you? I don't even know how this is important to anything. Like they just nonstop hounding her. And then they started showing her letters. So what the police did not tell the press is that Lucy was sending letters to the police station. 
What? But they were hand typed. They were signed by Lucy. But Lucy's family will say that that it looks like someone had copied her handwriting, but we know it's not her. And the writing of these typed letters seemed weirder. So these letters, one of them was for Louise. And it says, Louise, I love you like a sister, but you fuck up my plans by making me famous. He took me to the hotel and fucked me. Fuck hostesses. I want to be what I want. Louise, you think you know me, but you don't. And like, I just read you entries of, you know, Lucy's journal. She is very eloquent. She doesn't have these harsh language. She calls Louise Lou in her journal entries. Mm-hmm. And <sighs> when were these letters sent? After like weeks after, like once the police start heavy investigating. Oh, yeah. Like, that's weird. The end of July, towards the end of July. So it could very much be someone who's faking it, right? Yeah. But there was enough information to show that this was someone who probably knew Lucy. Okay. Because later they'll also send another envelope stuffed with cash. <laughs> and they said it's it's to pay off Lucy's debt, signed Lucy, like stuff like that, which is very strange because this is when the whole cult theory, right? Because maybe the last suspect is really, what if it is a cult? Now, first things first, cults usually want your money. They don't want to give you money. They don't want to pay off your debts. Let's be real. They want your money. So now that they have this letter showing up with an envelope full of cash to pay off Lucy's like close to 10,000 10, USD in debt, that's a lot. It just like doesn't sit with, right with them. It also doesn't sit right with sex trafficking, like human trafficking. That doesn't seem like you would pay off the police $10,000. You would just make someone vanish. What does that letter even say? When, when Just like, oh, I am now, um, well, she is the P word, but now I'm a sex worker to pay off my debts. So here we go. Like, here's your money. So it was written in Lucy's name yeah. that's saying, stop looking for me. Yeah. So there was like four or five letters. Two of them were written in first person. Like, oh, I'm Lucy. Here's my money. Stop looking for me. I'm a prostitute. Like that's how they phrased it. The P word, you know, I'm a sex worker now. And then um, you had the other half from the cult leader being like, oh, yeah, she's being taken care of. She's fine. They also stated that she was diagnosed with schizophrenia and disassociative identity disorder. So that's like really random. Uh-huh. They couldn't get any prints off of them, so there's that. Like it was just weird. Just really oddball stuff. So this is I think what made the press go even crazier about this case. It's not a cult, it's not human trafficking, because everyone was thinking, okay, if it's not a cult, it's definitely human trafficking. But now it's not that because no human trafficker does this. This is this is dumb stuff. You just make them vanish and that's it. You just don't pay any attention. Yeah, so the motive gets even more confusing, yeah. right? So then this is when they start finding out that, oh, they thought, the family, the Blackmans, they thought, well, Lucy's going to get found. She's this blonde, tall woman. Um, the way that people described it, there's no way that you could see her if she ran away, if she's with a cult. There's no way that you could see her in a sea of Japanese people and not be like, huh, isn't that the girl that's missing? You mm-hmm. know, it just she's not blending in. But then they hit a roadblock that maybe a lot of these Japanese people see all foreigners kind of the same because um tim was out with sophie and they were handing out posters now tim's new wife josephine happened to be in tokyo too and she's handing out posters somewhere else and these japanese girls they start going crazy they're like oh my god oh my god follow us we we saw her we saw her we saw her so tim and sophie they drop everything and they're like what they're like literally right across the road we saw her so they rushed this store and they point through a shop window just like tapping on the glass and the woman turns around and it's literally tim's wife it's literally Lucy's stepmom, who is 20 years older than Lucy, who's in her 40s. I mean, she's blonde. 
So they were like, okay, well, maybe they think all blonde women look the same. Like, I don't know what's going on here. Like, it was just a lot. So then the family, they get called into the station literally every day and they are shown these letters. It doesn't make sense. You know, Lucy is telling the family, like, I've disappeared by my own free will. I wish not to be found. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. I want you to return to England and I'll call you there. Now, what's weird is that it's dated July 17th of 2000. That is Tim's birthday. And Lucy has never forgotten a birthday of any of her family members. So it's like they know just enough information to know that they have a connection to Lucy, that they know this is not like a random serial killer, a stranger, a complete stranger. This is someone who has talked to Lucy, but not enough that it is Lucy, you know? Mm. So it was just really strange. But the police tried to argue, well, maybe. I mean, she might be alive. They were like, no, no, she's not. Why do they think she's not alive? Because she would have reached out. Like, these are weird, you know? They're just saying, like, mm-hmm. no, 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 this doesn't make sense. It's not Lucy writing this, you know? Okay. I don't know if she's not alive, but it's not her. Okay. So then Tim gets a phone call when he returns to the UK. So now the family members are taking shifts. They wanted to have a family member in Tokyo at all times. But, um, you know, each one by one, they would come back and take turns. And the day, literally, he comes back to the UK for the first time. And he gets a call from a guy by the name of Mike. Mike Hills, a Norwegian man. And he says that he does business in Japan. And he's got contacts in the underworld, the Yakuza. And I want to help you find Lucy. Yakuza wants to find Lucy? Yeah, which you're like, why? Why, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the Yakuza, they're really big on the import and export of guns. And because of this international news, the police are everywhere in Tokyo. I mean, they're just monitoring everything. They're checking all our cargo to make sure we don't have a blonde woman in there. So annoying. We're just trying to do other illegal things this time so you know the faster that we find her and return her the better it is for business you know so we want to help and what makes us even better is that mike hills just happened to be in the uk he's like usually i do business in tokyo but right now i'm in the uk and i'd love to meet up with you so they meet up the next day and he spins this crazy tale and he says okay so i know this man by the name of mr nakani and he says that she is alive and well he's part of the yakuza she was kidnapped and she is being sold in the sex trade right now that's run by the yakuza i know mr nakani knows the kidnappers and if he's incentivized enough, we can bring her back. The whole operation's going to cost uh, anywhere between, let's say, 50000 to $80,000. Did you bring the cash that I told you? The initial upfront cost? So Tim, he grabs his wallet and takes out $20,000 in cash. And he said that, you know, this is beyond his life experience. Like, what do you do? Nobody else has leads. The police have nothing. And this man says he has Yakuza ties in this foreign country that you know nothing about. It would be so hard for a parent to say no. It would be so hard. And so he gives that $20,000 and the plan is in motion. Tim flies out to Tokyo immediately again. And he goes straight to the British embassy and he's like, we're getting her back. This is what's happening. He tells the whole story. The British embassy is incredibly skeptical. They're like, are you sure? But just in case they clear out a room for her, they have a med team on standby in case she is brought into the British embassy by the Yakuza. She might need some, you know, medical attention. And they wait. A week passes and Mike calls back and he says, nah, man, bad news. She's no longer in Tokyo. Her kidnappers got super scared. Too much press, you know? And so they transported her with, um, you know, three men wanted to buy her. So she is on a ship called Leo J. It's on its way to Manila right now. What? So he calls around. Indeed, there is a merchant ship vessel called the Leo J owned by a German company and it is bound for Manila. 
So he's like, oh shit. So then Mike calls back a couple days later and he says, okay, well, from Manila, she got onto another ship. Now it's headed towards Australia where she's going to be sold, but we're going to try to intercept her. Okay. The Armanac is the vessel, but I need another $15,000 because I need to personally fly Mr. Nakani and me to intercept her from being sold. So he pays the other $15,000. Now we've got, you know, $35,000 being paid. And he calls back a couple days later and he says, oh my God, you'll never believe it. Mr. Nakani has been murdered in his car. The Yakuza's pissed. I need more money. Tim has no doubts. Okay, so this is how Tim describes it, okay? And I'm laughing because I'm like, you know when you're like so sad you can't. So <laughs> Tim was believing, okay? And then a family reached out to him. The Winder family, they live in the UK and they say, hey, are you Tim Blackman? I heard from a friend of a friend that you were talking to someone named Mike Call. Well, we know Mike Call and you should not trust Mike Call. So the Winder family, they have this um, son who was 24 years old. He was an, an investment banker in the UK and he decided that he was going to go to Colombia and hunt for these rare orchids with a group of friends and he disappeared. He vanished in Colombia and then suddenly one day, a Mike Call started calling their family because they saw them all over the news and said that he has contacts in the underworld of Colombia probably with the cartels and in Japan it's the Yakuza that know the whereabouts but we need to pay them the ransom so they pay him ten thousand dollars but then they never hear from them again so they go to the police and now you know Tim is in the news they're like hey we heard from a friend of a friend that you are experiencing stuff like this yeah that's his is his name my call he's like oh shit his name is my call so eventually he gets caught he goes on trial in 2003 and he was charged with two counts of obtaining property by deception he claimed that his wife had cancer and he needed money to cure her and he was only sentenced to three and a half years what and so everyone in the press i mean even before he was caught and tried everyone hated him they said he's evil despicable how do you do something like this it's disgusting but tim he said that this was the the only hope that he had so he doesn't even feel mad he doesn't even feel that like oh i feel so sad about the money that's gone but when he Mm. found out that mike was a fraud he was so sad because that was his last bit of hope like the police didn't have any leads nobody knew anything this was his only hope and that makes it worse that's so fucked up yeah but he said that it was hard to hate him because he kind of missed like you know, before he found out it was a con. So then around this time, an anonymous businessman in the United Kingdom offers up a $1 million reward for anyone who has information on Lucy Blackman. So there's a lot of, um, yeah, like I guess the British really come together. Yeah. So then the Tim controversy starts around this time because he was doing a lot of research in these hostess bars. And a lot of, you know, people were talking, a lot of the British press who were also doing research on British tabloid money at these hostess bars. And a lot of Japanese people felt like, don't you think the dad of this missing hostess girl is um, enjoying himself a little too much at these hostess bars? Like he just seemed like he was having a little bit too much of a good time. You know, and, you know, Hugh, the person that had rented him the office space for free to set up that hotline, Mm -hmm. he said that Tim seemed more interested on how much money he can raise when his next TV appearance was, like they started having a falling out because it's just weird. Then the British press, they start digging up all about Tim Blackman's life because once you, you know, sow a little seed of doubt on someone, he suddenly became like public enemy number one. So word came out that he only saw Lucy a handful of times in the last five years because he went to start a new family. 
So he's a man who didn't even take time out to see his daughter, and now he's on every television, you know, across the world, crying. A lot of people didn't like it. It was just weird. Meanwhile, Jane, though, she did get a lot of sympathy because she was playing the part. That's how the book describes it. Playing the part of someone who you, you know, you want to feel pity for the family. Mm -hmm. You want to feel these things. You want to help them so you can feel good about yourself. And Jane was the perfect family member because she showed her emotions. She was crying. She had her head down. She was, you know, frantic. Tim, he was collected. He's going to these hostess bars. It was much mm -hmm. easier to feel sympathy for Jane. And then you find out that he cheated on Jane, left the family, started a new family. I mean, Jane, now this like single mom raising these kids, her kids lost in Tokyo. It's just a lot. So these two women come to Tim and they tell him a crazy story. So they call into the tip line and um, let's call them. So we're going to call them Susie and Michelle. Mm -hmm. So Susie and Michelle, they're former hostesses who ended up marrying like rich Western bankers while they were hostessing so they like met them while they were on business and they were introduced to tim with new information so they said that they had this instance with a tohan with a wealthy japanese customer who took them to an apartment by the sea ring a bell yeah and then they went into his apartment they um ate some food drank some wine and then the next thing they remember is waking up naked in a bed now, one of the women, you know, Michelle, she woke up with a man filming her naked body with a video camera and she freaked out, snatched the tape from the machine, ran out and blackmailed the man for, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Years passed. Nobody remembers where this apartment by the seaside is. It seemed like some sort of resort, like a like a one of those buildings that had tons of units, kind of like holiday apartments, like vacation homes. There was palm trees. They remember that. Mm -hmm. But they weren't the only ones. There had been talks around the hostess community. So there was another woman. Let's call her Emily. She came to Tokyo to escape. You know, her dad was an attorney. She grew up in an upper class in um, Australia and she was excited about Tokyo. She came when she was 19, completely alone. She starts hostessing. She goes on a toan and this nice Japanese older man in his 40s comes, picks her up. They go hang out and then, you know, they go on dinner and he's like, do you want to go back to my apartment? It's by the seaside. So she's like, oh, my God, that's amazing. So they get into the car. Now, he is rich, like really, really rich. Every time he had seen her, it was always in a new Rolls Royce or a new Porsche. Like he had three different kinds of Porsches, a Mercedes, a Ferrari. Like she she was like, OK, this feels safer because there's nothing like he wouldn't do anything crazy to like jeopardize his status. I think that's the scariest thing is you think that these powerful people won't do something so blatantly fucked up because why would they risk their entire, you know, fortune? But they do. It's like literally the opposite. They think they can get away with it so they'll do even crazier shit okay so the her biggest memory is as they're driving to the seaside town he's just non-stop sweating just non-stop he's like one of the sweatiest people she had ever meet just constantly wiping off his sweat the ac was pumped to the max in that rolls royce just non-stop sweating so they get there now they go into his little bachelor pad and after a while the sun starts coming up. It's like seven in the morning. She's like, well, I should probably get back to my place. And he says, oh, no, no, no. Before you go, before I drop you off, I have this rare wine from the Philippines. Drink it. So she's like, OK, drinks a small glass of it, slightly chemical taste. And the next thing she knew was that she felt like she was going under general anesthesia. And she said that was the scariest thing because you're too gone to even be scared, but you're conscious. You're like, nope, I know something's going to happen. And then it's just lights out. And she woke up dressed in a bed alone. So at first she was like, wait, I know what should have happened, but why am I dressed? You know, this doesn't make sense. Then she checks the time and realizes she had been knocked out for more than 12 hours. He had redressed her. So he comes into the room. She's laying on the bed. 
And he's sitting there just staring at her. It's like he's waiting for her to accuse him. But she doesn't because she's so scared. I mean, she's like, well, how, how am I going to get back to Tokyo? I don't even know where the fork I am, you know? So she's like, well, I should probably go home now. Like, can you drop me off? Mm-hmm. So he's like, sure. So he puts her in the car. And the whole time, she's just blaming herself. She just kept thinking, I thought I understood the rules of hostessing. But I guess I was naive. I mean, I did come to his place. So maybe that's when things change. I don't know. Like, she just kept blaming herself, right? And she took a few days off of work, went back to working. He never showed up in the club again. I mean, he was coming all the time when they met. Never showed up. Four years later, she's working in a different part of Japan. And she meets another foreigner who says, oh, my God, there's this guy who's like a on women in Tokyo. He's like taking them to some seaside apartment and drugging them. She's like, what? And this is when she realizes, oh my God. Like she said that the past four years, she tried not to think about it. She didn't even think of herself as a victim because she just wanted to like blame herself. She was like, that was my fault. You know, you get what you, you know, ask for. Like that was like the vibe, right? And now she's like, oh my God, this is a full-blown predator. I'm a victim. Like it was hitting her what had happened that she had been raped, you know, and drugged. So Mm -hmm. then a few months later, it's all coming full circle. She gets a call from a friend who's a former hostess who is a foreigner from the UK and says, hey, my younger sister Louise and her best friend Lucy are headed to Japan. Do you think you can find a place for them? It's her? It's her. <gasps> so she books them a room at the Sasasaki house and she said it was insane because Louise looked just like her older sister and they were like best friends when they were hostessing together and Lucy looked kind of like herself and this brought her back to like when she first got to Japan and like the oh these two girls like in this land of you know we don't know like the big concrete jungle of what dreams are made of like that type of vibe two months later Lucy goes missing so this friend Emily is talking to all of the other you know the Phillips Louise Phillips the best friend and her older sister that she's friends with And they're like, yeah, well, she said that she was going to the sea with a customer and she hasn't come home. That's Uh when she went missing. So she's like, oh, my God, it's got to be the same guy. So then the girls in the hostessing community, they start talking and come to find out it has happened to at least seven or eight women that they know of. And every single time the guy gives a different name, same seaside apartment, same M.O. Some of the girls even knew each other or some of them were like best friends. Some of them like barely knew each other. It was just weird. And when all of them heard about Lucy, they had the same reaction. It's got to be him. But there was only one report to the police. Most of the girls were scared. They were on tourist visas. But an American woman by the name of Katie, she showed up. So the guy is targeting foreigners. Yes. And Japanese women. But not Japanese hostesses, oddly. So he would um, target foreign women and Japanese women looking for boyfriends in Japan. Okay. Very fascinating. So then... um, Yeah, a a woman named Katie had gone to the police three years before Lucy went missing. She was the only report prior to when Lucy went missing. And she said that she was working at a club and a middle-aged man named Koji came in and they start drinking. They go on a toan later. She ends up at a seaside apartment. She woke up passed out 15 hours later. 15 hours she was passed out wearing just her underwear and he had the weirdest explanation. She's like, why am I in my underwear? What did you do to me? He says, no, 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 I didn't do anything to you. There was a gas leak. The the gas was leaking in the air. You knocked out. I knocked out. I've got this terrible headache. And she just wanted to get home. She's terrified. So she's like, okay, well, can you give me a cab back to Tokyo? And he puts her in a cab and he had stuffed a bunch of money in her purse. 
thinking that she wouldn't go to the police, but she did. Now she goes to the police. The police don't even care. They don't even take her into a room. They straight up take her statement on a scrap piece of paper, like not even a notepad. And she's like, I see what you're doing. Like, I can see that. She even brought in a Japanese speaker, like one of her managers at the club. And they just like literally didn't care. They wrote it on a scrap piece of paper. Three years later, after she hears Lucy Blackman is missing, she goes straight back into the police station and they still didn't care. So she tells all the other girls like they don't care. So then all of them start reaching out to Tim because the police don't want to investigate. Mm -hmm. They're like, let's call the hotline then. So finally, Tim puts enough pressure on the police and the police are like, "Okay, fine, we'll look into it. And they reach out to those girls. They come in and they put them in a police car. And now the police start driving them around the coast. And they're like, we need to find this place, right? We don't have any solid leads. This is it. Seaside apartment. We need to find the apartment. We need to find everything. And at the same time, they start finally tracing the numbers because Lucy had gotten a phone call. She had called Louise's phone off of one of these phones. But that kind of hit a dead end because the phone was purchased in June of 2000 with 70 other burner phones. 70, 70. So this sale was made a few days before Japanese law was introduced that required buyers to show an ID. Oh my God. So the guy's like, I have a couple of days left. Yeah. So he bought 70 under a fake name. Of course he did. Only a few had been activated since then. One of them had called Lucy. One of them had called Louise and, you know, Scott. So they knew it was coming from these burner phones, but they had no idea who it was connected to. Uh-huh. And it pinged off of a town called Zushi. So then they take the girls to Zushi and they're like, oh shit, that's it. That's the building. They all point to the <gasps> same building this is the building. But now this building has like hundreds of units in it. And most of them are vacant because they're like vacation homes from rich Japanese people. So they're like, we need to run background checks on everyone that lives on this building. A ton of them have criminal records, but only one of them was a sex offender. Only one of them. He was arrested for peeping into a woman's bathroom with a camera in his hand. And this was the second time that he did this. So he pled guilty. And guess how much he was fined? $90. That's less than one hour at one of these clubs. He was just fined $90. $90. So they tracked down this guy, they tracked down his cars, and he had multiple cars. You know, he had Mercedes Benzes, he has Porsches, he has Ferraris, and he was traveling from Tokyo to Zushi the day that Lucy disappeared. They saw CCTV footage of it. And then from there, he made a bunch of small journeys to and from and around the town and back to Tokyo. Like, the dude was busy after the next couple of days. So they start surveillance on this man and they contact the police in another seaside town. um, He had another apartment. So they find out that this guy has like a million apartments. Like he's rich. He's like worth, I think, close to $60 million. Okay. Yeah. So he's rich. So they start. Yeah, we'll get into it. So they start, you know, tracking him down and another police department comes forward to the Tokyo police department and they say, Hey, so we have a little seaside town that we govern, you know, that our little police station is in charge of. And we got a call from the Blue Sea apartment building. And the manager was like, hey, I don't, there's this like random person who's trying to open a unit with a locksmith. And I don't know what's going on. I don't think they live here. I've never seen this unit even being used, right? Mm-hmm. So the police show up at apartment 401. It's been unused for several years. The man said he doesn't have a key. The locksmith opened it. He had parked his Mercedes right outside. And when the police pass this Mercedes, they have no idea that it belongs to this man. But they just saw that they saw these um, strange lumps under like sheets in the car. Like if you were to roll up like a pillow under a sheet and then put it in your car, but there was multiple of them and it just was strange. Like they weren't shaped like a pillow, like shaped like things that you would immediately be like, oh, that's definitely like a butt cushion under there. Right. So they go to that unit. They knock on the door. They hear him. I mean, there's a lot of noise. But he doesn't open. So they keep slamming on the door. Eventually, he opens up the door, half naked, wearing just his pajama trousers. And he's got sweat all over his face, chest. He's doing some vigorous work in there. 
Mm-hmm. She's like, can we talk to you? Like, do you live here? And he's mm-hmm. like, let me change my clothes. Then he comes back out again and they see some concrete inside of the unit. Like just buckets of concrete, which is really weird. So they're like, well, can we search your place? Because we heard from the caretaker that you're a suspicious person. And he says, no, showing you inside my place is like showing you my naked body. Now they have no warrant. They have no physical evidence. They call the police station. Turns out the man is the legal owner of this unit. So he just wasn't around. So the caretaker had no idea who this guy was. Mm -hmm. But he was the legal owner. Now here's where it gets weird. A couple hours, the police get a call from Unit 401, the one that they were just investigating. Mm -hmm. And they say, hey, officers, I need you guys to come to my apartment. So they rush back to the same apartment. And it's the same guy. He opens up the door and he's holding something wrapped in sheets. And they see it's the head of a dog. And he says, my beloved dog has died. I thought you guys would think it's strange, so I didn't let you in. But that, that's why I was acting so suspicious, because my dog is dead. And my dog's body was just here. Now the police, they're like, that's weird. But they realized that the dog's body was so stiff. Like, it's not the body of a dog that just died. Like, oh it's like the body God. of a dog that's, like, been frozen or something. And that is where I leave you with part one. I'm so sorry. I don't like to do two-parters, but this one's intense. And I'm actually going to be posting the part two on Friday instead of our regular Sunday upload schedule. Now, here's the thing with part two. I mean, the reason that there has to be a part two is because we're going to get into his childhood. There is a landmine of evidence that we find at this person's place. I mean, there are suspected victims in the counts of maybe 150 people all the way up to 400 people this monster has been operating in the shadows of tokyo for so long stay tuned for this friday because it's about to be an even bigger shit show dun dun okay sorry dun, dun. <laughs>